Support for the game podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the game podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 99 of the Game Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me is Brian, the skittering host, Gottlieb. It's guest week, Jerry. We have it to is. be good hosts. We we have multiple guests this week. And you know, guests aren't something we do here a lot. I tend to get like a little antsy when we start talking about doing guests. But we have awesome guests this week. And we're going to, I think, bite our tongues on who the second guest is for the time being. But we are going to put out two episodes this week. And we should probably introduce our guest for this first episode, right? This is this is my best friend of all time. And possibly a <laughs> fictional person. Possibly. Josh Cho, what's up, man? Uh, not much, man. Just just hanging out. Uh, happy to finally be invited onto the prestigious game podcast. Longtime listener, first time guest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's kind of how I felt. I felt pretty bad because Kevin Jones got on here twice before I got on here once. So what the hell's up with that, guys? Well, you've now joined a, a very exclusive club. Like there have not been many guests in the history of the game podcast. Ooh, I think I can name them too. So it was Kevin Jones twice, BBD after he won Worlds. And then I think you guys had a special episode with Andrew Brown coming in to, to kind of guest host. Is that right? I didn't listen to the earlier episodes. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I've only oh listened since God. I've been on. I only know Kevin Jones. I so I wasn't I wasn't really counting the Andrew Brown thing because T was on the podcast, you know. Mm. No, you're you're number three, basically. <laughs> it's a good spot to be. It's not bad. So we have GB New Jersey coming up this weekend. Uh, I am not going to be there, so I'm, I'm sending Cho as my proxy. So <laughs> yeah, don't we, blow we, it. No, I mean, there's there's no way I'm going to blow it. I've I've tested incredibly little for this tournament. I've played very minimal, and I'm excited to see how this goes. Standard looks like it's a lot of fun, though, especially uh, listening along to your podcast. It sounds like there's so many things that are just constantly changing on a week-to-week basis, which is kind of mind-blowing considering like how... Uh, I don't know if stagnant is the right word for the last Standard format, but you know everything was pretty much the same with you know slight variations on certain decks does that sound about right yeah stagnant's definitely right and i do think that this format has continually evolved week to week and every week we have some new stuff to talk about and it's not small stuff either and i think that this week isn't going to be any different like there's a lot of weird stuff going on on magic online right now yeah the evolution of the format just happens continually i i would even say on a day-to-day basis which is so exciting because i think stagnant is the right word for the previous formats and maybe even standard as a whole for the last couple years or so this is the first time in recent history i can remember being like really impressed by the continual innovation both like within archetypes and with new archetypes showing up every week so it's been really cool well, before we actually get into stuff and start talking about it deck by deck, I guess, like, is there any way that either of you are leaning? I uh, want to start with Brian. Uh, I would say I'm leaning in two kind of specific directions right now. I, ha- I have an article coming out on Star City tomorrow. That, that'll be Wednesday. We're recording this on a Tuesday. 
so that'll be going up and just kind of talking about these really promising decks I've been kind of stumbling across as I just play tons and tons of magic online. And they all seem like if I put in enough time, they could be the deck for this weekend. But, you know, we're kind of running out of time. And the two decks that I'm highest on right now would be Jeskai Control and a specific version of Jeskai Control. I think I'll save that discussion until we actually start talking about the archetype. And Blue Red Arc Light Phoenix is the other deck I'm also super high on right now. And I think this is one that if you haven't been paying very, very close attention to what's going on, people may not have heard of yet. Uh, I know it's been a continuous topic of discussion in the Game Podcast Discord. And, you know, a lot of people I'm close with are certainly very interested in the deck, but the broader community, I don't think has quite caught on yet. There's, there hasn't been any real articles about it, uh, you know, in-depth explorations. I've, I was watching Misplaced Ginger's stream the other day. He's like, this deck is a joke. Why would anyone play this? He's completely wrong. He's wrong about a lot of things often. Love you, Ginger. Yeah. Damn, shots fired. But <laughs> we're co-hosts. <laughs> it's okay. We, co- we co-host first strike from time to time. I'm allowed to take shots at him. But uh, yeah, I think people just don't understand that it's a very real, very scary deck. And again, I think we'll talk more about that as we move on to the podcast. But that's where I'm leaning right now. One of those two decks. Joe, what about you? To be honest, so I started playing a good deal of standard, uh, let's say about a week and a half ago. And I feel like the entire format has already kind of lapped me, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is absurd because, you know, it's like a week, it's like a week and a half of not playing magic on a daily basis. Like Brian said, uh, I was pretty happy with how how some of the Jeskai lists, uh, particularly one that you wrote about, I think about two weeks ago uh, in one of your articles, Jerry, where I was really impressed by certain cards, uh, specifically, gosh, what's the name of of that? Expansion Explosion. All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna be honest. Some of the names are gonna be pretty difficult for me to just remember off the top of my head. Uh, but Expansion Explosion was pretty excellent. I came in kind of thinking that the back half of it, Explosion, was definitely the more powerful half of the card. But I was honestly pretty impressed with Expansion uh, in a bunch of spots where I think that you know that card is. I don't know if it's like still flying under the radar. Uh, I could I could check, but you know, it wouldn't surprise me if that card went from, you know, like a $2 card up to, you know, 10-15 or whatever. Yeah, what what were you doing? Like I know that you sent me a bunch of like weirdo stories like you expansions, uh the explosive vegetation. Oh yeah, uh cir- circuitous route. Maybe if you'd paid closer attention to standard, you would know all of these super <laughs> obscure <laughs> ramp cards. So no. listen, I knew I knew the card's name. I just didn't know how to pronounce the first word in it. Circuitous. And I'm still, yeah, I'm still not sure that that's even right. But what's what's the other way to say it? Circuitous? That just sounds awful. It does sound awful. I don't know, man. You're the one in college, not me. Yeah, but English is my second language. So what's your excuse? <laughs> I don't have one, man. <laughs> Oh, man. But yeah, so I was playing against, uh, and again, I don't know if this was right around the time where everybody was just trying out a bunch of different strategies, but this was the the Nexus of Fate deck that Brian was super high on uh, in the past, but they were just, you know, playing a bunch of ramp spells. And on their turn three, I was on the draw. They cast uh, Circuitous Route uh, with the either Lion or Elves or something else, and I was able to expansion it and then play Teferi draw a card, untap, and then have counter magic ready. Yeah, that, that game was super easy. Yeah, I'm not sure how often that's going to happen, but I, I agree that expansion does have a lot of 
weirdo use cases. Although it seems like the amount of just actual spells being played is going down. Yeah, I could see that being the case. It looks like Golgari's been everywhere. On my Facebook, I'm friends with Steve Mann. Uh, I think he's random drooler on Moto, but like every couple of days, he'll just put up like 5 0 another league with this pile of green black cards or, or whatever. And so it's been kind of strange to see like watching or reading the the deck list dumps that have been on on MTG online dot com and then also just seeing what you know my my friends are playing and kind of seeing how things evolve over time is it a little weird that neither of us said green black because i think most people look at that as the default best deck and you know for me i certainly stray from the default best deck quite often and i I kind of look for excuses often not to play it i like to not have the target on my head and i like to have more room for innovation but when i think of your typical deck selection show. I, I I think of you often playing the best deck and just playing it, you know, particularly well and leveraging your skill to win mirror matches and to be able to deal with hate. So I, I thought it was a little strange that you didn't necessarily head towards green black in the first place. Uh, yeah. So I've, I've kind of come up with a very solid strategy in my opinion on how to select decks for tournaments is that I, I don't do any testing. I do very little reading. And then in the 11th hour, I'll just send Jerry a Facebook message or shoot him a text and be like, yo, should I play at this tournament? <laughs> <laughs> and then just go from there. I, I also like that strategy, except then I, I do that and I say, yeah, this is a really good idea. And then I don't listen for some reason. I, I don't know what's wrong with me. I can't take that last step of actually registering the deck he tells me to register. So go, going back when, when I first started hanging out with Jerry, um, one of the first instances of us playing against each other was at the height of, uh, was it was it Twinblade? Yeah, right? this was this was SCG Baltimore that Ali won and Jason Ford G- got second. Yeah, I was going to say Jason got second. Yeah, like there was there was a, a large contingent of people that were playing this clearly busted deck with multiple cards that were going to be banned the, the <laughs> next week, I think. And, and I'm over here just playing my my red black vampires deck, which I still contend was a reasonable matchup for it, regardless of how many people tell me that I'm wrong. But I've just kind of always been on the uh, I don't know if it's like the right side of history or the wrong side of history where there's all these super powerful things that are happening. And I'm just like, no, nah, I'm going to play my gatekeeper of Malakirs and my blood gas and my Calastria highborns. What happened in that tournament? I think that was, I was at a feature match. I can't remember who I played against or who won. Are, are you talking about our match? Oh, that's right. I did play against you. How did that match go? You sacked me out real bad. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, man, you beat me. I don't know. I think it's. I think it is kind of like the wrong side of history in in that you're not playing the deck that gets a bunch of cards banned, but you were playing a thing that did have a reasonable matchup. So it's like, if you're not playing the best deck, you're playing something that's kind of like hard targeting it while also being a reasonable thing. I think that's also a fine place to be. Yeah, and then after that, uh, Jerry and I, you know, got got a lot closer, started traveling to a bunch of events together, and this is where I really honed in on my practice of just copying Jerry's deck list at SCG Nashville, I think. We played the same 75, played each other in the Swiss, and I skillfully outmaneuvered him with some creative sideboarding. But <laughs> <laughs> Creative sideboard. Brian, how creative do you think you can get in the Delver mirror? My guess is probably not all that creative. What if what if you were you were cutting uh, like vapor snags for consecrated sphinx? Do you think that would be a good call? That is aggressive, and I think probably unlikely to work out in most instances. Yeah, he smashed me, and then uh, I oh, won the course. tournament, so it's all good. 
All right. It came back around. Yeah. I was also in the top eight and I think that there was like three other, two other people. I know that Kenny Castor was in that top eight. We had four. We had four total. Yeah. Playing almost identical, like, like maybe 73 out of 75. But, uh, Ever since then, just playing with Jerry, uh, working with him closely for a large number of tournaments, you can really see the uh, the amount of preparation that he puts in and his thought process behind why he chooses certain cards for certain matchups. I've kind of learned just to trust his judgment when it comes to those kinds of things. And so that's, that's kind of why I came on this podcast, because I'm, I'm really just looking for something to play. And I'm hoping that, that <laughs> two of the uh, most astute minds in the podcast game can uh, help me come up with a decision of what to register this Friday or Saturday. Well, uh, I guess we should start with Golgari and maybe not talk about why Brian doesn't want to play the best deck, but like, why would you not want to play this deck if it is as good as people say it is? Like, are there issues with Golgari in general that you don't like, or you think that you can hard target it kind of like what Cho was doing or what's the deal? Yeah, I just think that I have I, I have a lot of respect for the deck. I wouldn't fault anyone for choosing it this weekend. I think I've now played enough against the deck and with the deck that I understand kind of where its strengths lie, where its weaknesses lie. I think they change on a regular basis, like different cards become important all the time. You know, we see Carnage Tyrant as the top end now, as, the, as opposed to things like Azoni, uh, even though I think Azoni probably still deserves a place in a lot of instances. But for the most part, we've seen that change start to happen. And then there's like the adaptation of Midnight Reapers, another important change that the decks have made. And I kind of understand what all these things are building to, what they're hoping to accomplish. And I feel like... I'm aware of the deck's weaknesses now, and it has some weaknesses to Flyers. I think Rekindling Phoenix remains a fine card against the green-black deck. And look, I could also make adaptations to the green-black deck to kind of catch these problems and round them off. I think maybe adding more Vraska's Contempt makes a lot of sense at this point, especially as you think about the mirror match leading harder on Planeswalkers and Planeswalkers being more important. You can certainly make that case. But I think that kind of relies on you understanding what level the average opponent is going to be on in order to have success. So for me, getting the optimal Golgari list requires me to know exactly where the majority of the field is going to lie. And then even if I'm right about the majority of the field, I still think I can have a mismatch deck against like a very key matchup in either, you know, the late rounds or playing for, you know, a top eight, things like that, you can still certainly catch the bad end of variance and have a deck that isn't tuned. So I'd rather have just my entire strategy be designed to target this deck rather than make these small tweaks and optimizations to catch where the deck is going to fall on this given week. Yeah, but I think at some point you would probably argue that if Golgari was the type of thing you wanted to play, you're like, oh, it's infinitely customizable. And no matter what I expected to play against, I could always figure out, you know, what cards I want to play and actually be good against them. And like now you're kind of using that as a downside. You're just like, oh, it's that's too hard. I don't want to figure that out. I was just going to say, man, I could really tell that Brian was a lawyer in a past life because I listened oh, yeah. I listened to him talk for like, you know, three minutes about Golgari and I still can't tell whether or not he likes it or doesn't like it. <laughs> just talking circles around me and my, and I still, I still don't know which way you're leaning, but uh, so you think it's a, a good choice or a bad choice? Just give me a straight answer, dude. I think it's a defensible choice. I think my choice is targeting it. Give me a higher success 
a higher chance of success at this tournament. I, I think knowing its weaknesses and where I expect it to fall this week, I've, I've identified decks with positive matchup against Golgari. I know what cards are important and I'm ready to kind of exploit that information more than I'm ready to nail down the exact perfect 75. Sure, you see, you see what I'm saying, though, right? Where oh yeah, no, I see what, what you're saying. You're, what you're describing is not a downside. It's an upside of the deck. You're able to make it do whatever you need it to do. I get that, and but my point is, I don't have that answer. Like, can I get to that answer? Probably, but there's a point where I run out of time, and I have the other answer. Like, I I think I know how to beat the deck. I don't have the answer on how to put together the perfect Golgari. Could I get there in time? Possibly. I, I'm not sure. You do have a six-hour plane ride, and I don't know about you, but I do a lot of my best work on planes. Dude, I just sleep on planes. How do you actually do work on planes? I don't know, very easily. Especially if, I, if I've if i run out of time and I need to figure out what to play, you know? <laughs> See, I'm more inclined to look towards my games. I don't think I, I have that capability to just pull it out of thin air. It depends on the instance, obviously. Like if I'm super, if I'm super practiced with the deck, then I can do that. But I've invested so much of my time in other stuff at this point too that it's like uh, I don't know if I have the the ability to do it without playing the games, basically. Sure. I mean, you have all the experience to draw on from you playing against Golgari with various things, which is where I would probably take that information from in your situation. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What about you, Cho? Do you like Jade Light Ranger and a bunch of other mopey cards? I mean, when you put it like <laughs> when you put it like that, then obviously not. But I mean, I think you're kind of underselling some of the strengths of the deck of being incredibly consistent, having ways that you can actually, you know, gr- grind opponents out. Because I remember playing against against Golgari uh, from the Jeskai side of the matchup, and I was definitely pretty impressed by how you know how much value they could accrue from just their their creatures and spells you know while maintaining a board presence on throughout the course of the game and it's not like you could just you know let land at the ferry and then just pull miles ahead because they they also have ways to continue to you know build up cards when you're talking about cards like midnight reaper for instance as a way to you know reset after a definite clarion or a board sweeper or just additional ways just to accrue incremental value and then just kind of bury a jeskai opponent which i was kind of shocked by you know coming from the the teferi expansion explosion side of things so i mean there's definitely um a, a lot of strengths to it and i but i do agree with what you said i found that a lot of the ways um if if i I'm going to choose a deck that I personally don't have a lot of experience with uh, having a lot of experience playing against when you're trying to figure out, recognize what the opposing deck, their strengths and weaknesses are, and kind of trying to, to find a way to, you know, overcome the opposing deck's strengths. Uh, having that type of experience is incredibly helpful when you're, you know, looking to pick up the other side of it for a tournament like like we have this weekend. Was that a thumbs up or a thumbs down? Dude, I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm trying to, trying to. Uh, em- Nobody em- can emulate. give an opinion on this deck. No one's going straight forward. Yeah, I'm just trying to emulate Brian. You know, just trying to give a really, really long-winded <laughs> explanation about a deck, uh, and then ultimately, I'm not sure. You know, where where I would land on it. But if I, if I were to play a deck tomorrow, you know, I wouldn't be upset about playing Golgari, and I think that we could definitely come up with a list that I felt was strong. Uh, and could do well with. Uh, but one of the things that I wanted to ask you, Brian, is uh, how would you define success at this tournament? Would it only be a success if you cashed, if you top aided, if you got a PT invite, if you went 12 and three to get three pro points? Like what's like, what are you like looking for when you're trying to make these deck uh, decisions? 
top eights. I mean, nothing else really does anything for me. It's it's not like I have a a wealth of pro points and I'm trying to necessarily get levels. Uh, anything short of top eight is kind of not what I came for. Not to say that like I can't have a good time at a tournament tournament where I don't top eight, but that's where I draw the line for success and will be like, yes, this tournament went the way I wanted it to. And that's a high bar. I, I recognize that. And I'm cool with that because those are the outcomes that are going to bring me happiness and like actually mean something to me. A cash is just like, whatever, it's nice. I, I'm happy with it, but I can't really take any true satisfaction from anything less than a top eight. And you're basically in the same boat, right, Joe? Because God, honestly, who, who knows, man? Like I was gold last year. I went, I played in all the pro tours, but I've really tried guys. I really tried to wrap my head around this new system. I think I'm <laughs> bronze. I don't know are. when that's going to fall off, but I think that's, that's, I mean, I, I didn't mean to like come here and start bashing on Watsy or whatever, but you know, it's incredibly frustrating to try to figure out what type of result would ultimately, you know, set me up for success down the road. And I'm sure that there's many people that are kind of in the similar, uh, the similar situation that I am. But I mean, honestly, I just want to, you know, go out, learn some stuff, maybe have some, have some sweet games. Because, you know, if I if I top eight this GP, that's awesome. And, you know, playing on the Pro Tours is one of the most fun experiences that I think that anybody could <laughs> could have in their magic playing career. But, you know, I'm just I'm I'm not setting, you know, the giving myself the pressure of top eighting a tournament because honestly, I, I think that's way too the, the weight of expectations would be far too great if I did that to myself. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. And you leave a lot of tournaments disappointed that way. And, you know, Cho, I've, I've said this in the past, too. I don't know if I said it on the podcast, but definitely in talking with Jerry, it's just like your results to me are so impressive. And this is maybe will come off as a backhanded compliment. I don't mean it that way. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm being genuine. Like I think your results are incredibly impressive because you've maintained such a high player level despite really only having like the one noteworthy finish. You have the one Pro Tour top eight, but no GP top eights, right? Well, that, that 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 depends. Are we counting team GP? No, we're not. We're not counting team. But I got eights. the I got the little badge on planeswalkerpoints.com or whatever it is that says I top eighted a GP. That doesn't that's count? cheap. I don't I don't care for that assignment of badges. But no, this this really isn't like I, I know it can come off that way. It's not a knock. It's a hundred percent like that is consistent magic and someone who shows up to a magic tournament and puts up a good result over and over and over. And in so many ways, that's harder to do than just like spiking a random tournament. You know what I mean? Yeah, but. Honestly, so so my situation was uh, I hit silver before well, this must have been what two seasons ago, and then I was set up with one silver invite after skipping PT uh, Australia, yeah, PT Sydney, uh, and then I won an RPTQ for PT Hawaii, and then kind of just went to a ton of Grand Prix. Like I think I like my my Grand Prix records that that season was we had six slots, and I occupied all six slots with twelve and three finishes. Uh, for yeah, the that's incredibly difficult to do. Incredibly difficult. Yeah, uh, I mean, you, you you say that, but it's also a lot of travel. Like I was just honestly just so burnt down by it that I just th- thought to myself, like, man, I'm I'm just never going to put myself through that again. Uh, which yeah. uh, I, I think it's important to have sort of a realistic outlook on how the value that you're going to attach to certain Grand Prix and certain Magic tournaments. Like, don't get me wrong. I, I certainly loved I've loved the travel. I loved all the experience and especially all the people that I've met uh, through playing this game. But there are certain aspects uh, as you get older where 
you know, you, you have your priorities change, you know, I'm, I'm going back to school, I'm married, uh, I've got a lot of other responsibilities and I, and I can't realistically say to myself, man, I'm going to go to, you know, 20 to 25, 30 grand prix a season or a year trying to main, maintain a high, a high level, which is why I'm in awe of people who can, you know, go to a few grand prix, do incredibly well, uh, and then just like run, run that up to, you know, continued pro tour success. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I mean, my approach is very similar. My life has necessitated a step back. And also, like you said, just like the burnout of traveling over and over and over. Oh, it is it is such a pain to fly. Uh, there, there, there were definitely points, and I'm sure that some of you guys can relate to this, where I would wake up in a hotel room and for a split second not know what city I was in. Uh, I think I've, I've woken up in Columbus thinking that I was in India and vice versa so many times. They're close, though. Yeah. Yeah. They, they are they are pretty close and they're also great cities too in a lot of ways geographically and as well as like what they have there I, I think they're very similar well does does that change anything for you too considering that you know Chia, I don't even know what the next GP you're gonna play in after this is and Brian you have Portland is your next thing probably like you're not you're both of you aren't playing in very many events so like does it change like your deck selection, do you want to gravitate towards something that is either more fun or uh, you don't necessarily care about how fun it is because you value winning a little bit more? Or what's the deal? I, I think that fun doesn't really play into the equation, but I oh, am certainly on. more willing. No, I, I don't I don't think so. I'm pretty happy playing Magic no matter what deck I'm playing. That's not really super determinative of my experience. I mean, I've I played Tron at my last modern GP, so obviously, like I can, I can embrace those things. Well, you are the devil, but it, it does leave me. I know uh, it does leave me more willing to take chances, though, because like I, I'm, I'm willing to take a more polarized approach. And you know, if I'm wrong and completely scrub out, that's fine. And a ten or a, excuse me, like an eleven four finish doesn't really do anything for me. So why not shoot for the moon? And I know you can make issue with that approach as well because floating more to the median is like, it's easier to just get that one or two win bump and end up with a top eight than really trying to completely nail something. I've heard that argument and it does make sense, but I don't know. The polarized approach has always worked for me. Really taking a chance in metagames uh, has paid me big dividends over the course of my Magic career. So. And it's also paid us negative dividends. Like when we ended up registering the Magus Elemental at a Pro Tour that uh, we got the deck list from you. So that was pretty exciting. I thought we were over this on this podcast. How are we back to Magus Elemental? Because I forgot the show. Was there I know. I forgot. It. I forgot he was one of the people who played it. And now we brought it all back around. <laughs> I, I had fun. I don't know. Oh, yeah. It was great. Dude, honestly, if. If I got to play against, like, I played against Yelger, uh, and they were, I think that was uh, when the Pantheon was all on Storm, and, you know, just going under them, I could I could definitely see us having a lot better success if the format wasn't, you know, a third Jund, which was the absolute worst matchup that I can imagine for that. That was the worst problem, yep. Uh, but yeah, so so going forward in this in this tournament, uh, I think that, that Green-Black, there's definitely some, some very some very strong merits to choosing a deck like this. And honestly, if I had to play it, I would be pretty excited about it because, you know, there's a ton of people that are doing well with it. I'm pretty arrogant, but I'm not so arrogant to think that, you know, I could, I could figure things out better than what, what do you call the, uh, the, the, the group of like, is it the collective of magic online? Mind. 
yeah, the hive mind. I'm not I'm not thinking that I can do a better job than them. But honestly, I came here for I came here to the game podcast because I wanted to get some insight about what I should play. So if we were to rank I mean, we've only done one deck list, but I'd be pretty happy about playing Golgari. Uh, is there something else that I should be considering for it? Uh, for Golgari or for other decks in the format? Uh, for other decks in the format of like what I should be yes. playing at this Grand Prix. What yeah, should I, I mean, play? We can we can talk about Jeskai Control a little bit because both show, like I think all three of us have a reasonable amount of experience with this deck. And uh, the last change that I made to the deck was kind of streamlining it a little bit making it even more blue-red focused and including Crackling Drake because things like Carnage Tyrant were a pretty big issue and Crackling Drake either allows you to race it or trade with it. And then Banefire was always a pretty big issue too. Crackling Drake gives you a way to actually close the game before they get up to enough lands. And I think cutting Settle the Wreckage was really important also. The the double white for Settle kit could was an issue at some at some points with it and so we're talking when i'm saying double white i'm also considering like cleansing nova to be kind of in the same boat which is probably a little bit better of an answer uh to cards like or to carnage tyrant specifically uh but leaving up your mana I, i've always felt like i've always wanted to do stuff with my mana on, on every turn and like if i didn't have chemistry's insight or something along those lines uh to, to make up for the turn where they play around settle you know, I just felt like I was just wasting my time there and just giving up so much time and, you know, board position or, or card advantage uh, that, you know, I could it could just kind of be the death knell against decks like like Golgari and things along those lines. Uh, but what I wanted to ask is that, do you think that there's any merit to cutting Settle? And then well, do people still play around Settle if you represent it? Likely, yeah. Yeah, I, I think yes to both those. Yeah, so, I mean, that sounds like a great reason to cut Settle the Wreckage. Yeah, my last list doesn't have any... And I had four Crackling Drakes instead. And I, th- I think that that is better in theory and also has been better in practice. And I haven't had too many experiences with like me being able to bluff settle was huge or whatever, but it can definitely come up. Yeah, as soon as you have that open white mana, your opponent will almost always respect it, I've found. And it kind of goes back to like that good player thing is that a good player will appropriately respect settle and you can use that against them. And also it necessarily makes settle worse. So I also am low on settle right now. This has changed only recently. And what it took was me overcoming my stubbornness in regard to Crackling Drake. Because when I first thought about all the problems I was concerned about, it seemed like settle was the answer. You know, I was concerned about recursive Carnage Tyrants in particular, via Find Finality, Arclight Phoenix came up as a card that I had some serious concerns about, and Rekindling Phoenix, and all of these cards do a really excellent job of making things like Cleansing Nova or Clarion seem very, very silly. But the actual correct answer I found only in the last day, and now my article is out of date. I, I feel bad at how quickly I often learn things, and like <laughs> I put out something that I don't feel as strongly about come the next day. But no, I think I think Crackling Drake is the way to answer those cards, like you were saying, Jerry. And you know, getting some additional value out of your Clarions as far as the lifelink goes, it does come up more than I thought it would. Another fine way to get out of Banefire range, and it it just like. People have seen how I build my control decks and you've seen how I build my control decks and I want to devote as little space to actually winning the game as humanly possible. That's just the way I've always built control decks. I think it's often the optimal way to do so. And that was why I had like this period of revulsion towards Crackling Drake. But that's not actually what the card is doing. It's just answering more problems in a very non-intuitive way, not in the typical way that a control deck would answer problems. Uh, And so I've really come around on the card and I think... 
that's what's really given me hope for Jeskai going into this weekend. I think it just solves all these issues that I was actually concerned about. Well, Jeskai also has the problem that you described with Golgari, where you basically need to get everything right. And I think we're kind of in a situation where Jeskai doesn't have to play a ton of actual answers to things. Like you have enough counter spells, you have Clarion, you have Teferi and Crackling Drake to kind of handle various things also. It's not so much about getting like the actual spot removal suite right, but you know, the, I think the early counter spell suite matters a ton, right? And there are the same issues with Golgari where you could just get it all wrong and just be dead from the get, you know? I think that's possible, but to me, it feels like mistakes in that counterspell suite are less likely to be punished. Like you, ha- you have some really safe options you can always lean on uh, that may be a little bit less efficient, but ultimately will get the job done. And I also just think like Syncopate's a fine card and it's a catch-all and Ionize is a fine card and plays very well with this Drake strategy and the eventual expansion explosions. It just feels like there's a lot more cohesiveness. Like each of these parts is adding to the whole a little bit more and it's not just a collection of good cards. It feels like the synergies are finally coming together with the deck and it's getting closer to a refined version is my take on it. Man, I'm pretty excited to hear all this love for Crackling Drakes because one of the biggest issues that I've had whenever Jerry and I are going to be playing a similar deck, uh, specifically control decks, is that he takes away all of my training wheels uh, when it comes to actual win conditions. Like I've seen some of the decks that he plays and I'm like, man, how how on God's green earth can you ever, you know, win a game? He's like, oh yeah, I've got, you know, two creeping tar pits as my win condition. Plenty. So, <laughs> so having a- yeah, so having a card like Crackling Drake, like you said, it it does it 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 does offer a way to to close out games fairly quickly uh, and also trade up with some problem cards. So I'm pretty excited to to be playing a card like that. Uh, one of the concerns that I do have is I think that the turn four or the turn where you have four la- or four mana uh, is just kind of such a critical turn uh, when you're looking to either counter their spell or leave leave mana up and then draw cards with Kemper's Insight to kind of pull ahead in the in the card advantage game. Do you feel like by playing a card like Drake that you're kind of leaving yourself exposed on such a critical turn in, in Jeskai or no? Sort of like since crackling Drake will generally have a decent amount of power. Like I'm playing opt alongside crackling Drake to you to just to make it. So it's like a three power thing. If they follow it up with a planeswalker, normally it doesn't really matter because the planeswalkers don't really threaten Drake and Drake can at least put him on a two turn clock. So what, what, like, what are they really going to punish you with? Like, if Chupacabra is their big punish, it's kind of whatever, you know? Like, you're up a card, they're up a 2-2. Vivian's the, the really problematic punish. Right, no, I, yeah, plan yeah. On win- I plan on winning all my Dyros, so I'll be on the play every game, so. Good idea, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think if, if Vivian is the case, like, when you're on the draw, like, maybe you're at a point where you're far behind enough that you have to play a Drake, but I don't know. I mean, also they could also, they could have land elves, which is kind of a problem, but it, it just depends. Yeah. You have to help. You have some agency, you know, you have to hope you have some influence over that stage of the game as well via counter spells. And you know, you're right. It depends. And it's like, you know, for a while, I think Ixalan's Binding was the card that was kind of filling that same role. And is Ixalan's Binding the perfect answer for a Jeskai control deck? Absolutely not. Tapping out on your four mana turn, it's painful in a lot of instances, but you kind of get to weigh whether it's necessary. You can always bluff Counterspell. I mean, it's not always correct to just jam into open mana from the Jeskai decks. And 
I like having that strategic flexibility where like, okay, if this is the road I have to go down, I still have that option of playing my Drake. But I also know I can pass on it if that's the way the game's going to be won and I can't afford to take the risk. I'm comfortable trusting myself to make those kind of determinations. Yeah, same. Well, if we're talking about how Jeskai control with no win conditions is sort of flawed because there are things like Carnage Tyrant and Banefire, Teferi is not the end-all be-all against Golgari, and we're going down this Crackling Drake path, what is the merit of Jeskai compared to something like these blue-red Arclight Phoenix decks? Yeah, I'm pretty excited to hear Brian talk a little bit more about uh, Blue Red Arc Like Phoenix because I, I haven't really been paying a lot of attention to it. And so I'm, I'm kind of excited to hear about why Brian thinks that this would be a, a good choice for this weekend. Yeah, so maybe we'll just transition to that now. And I'll just talk a little bit about yeah. that deck. So this is something that just kind of popped on my radar mid... I can't even tell anymore. I've played so much magic. My last two weeks have blended <laughs> together. I, th- I think mid last week was when this deck first started being something I was interested in. And there were some really early lists that looked super rough. And then time went on and I started seeing the list getting better. And there was like these very, very cantrip heavy builds that were super streamlined and optimized. And I finally started playing some games with it. And honestly, the deck feels like a modern deck. That's the only way I can describe it. Like the level of velocity and redundancy and consistency that this deck possesses is kind of incredible. Your drakes are often tremendous. You have very explosive turn threes pretty regularly where you can like reanimate two arc light phoenixes, which is pretty bonkers. And just arc light phoenix in general is a fine card. Like paying four mana for your three, two flying haste creature is acceptable in standard right now. You don't get super punished for that. So If there's drawbacks to the deck, it's that it's very reliant on Goblin Electromancer. But where spot removal isn't really being played by the Golgari decks, they're relying on Assassin's Trophy for their small ball removal for the most part. There are exceptions and and people who have built the deck differently. Uh, And then they have to get to Ravenous Chupacabra for a, a really efficient removal spell. You're able to leverage, even if you get one turn with Goblin Electromancer, it often feels like game over. You pile up so much advantage so quickly and and can just turn the corner very quickly. The deck is impressive. I I don't know how else to say it. If you've played games with it, you certainly know what I'm talking about. Probably played like 13-4 Drakes and these just monstrous flyers that other decks aren't really equipped to handle right now. Uh, And you have this recursive value engine that you can really lean into hard against any deck that's trying to control your board presence, they're not going to be able to do so when you're recurring arc like Phoenix's turn after turn after turn. So I'm looking at two different lists um, that came out. Now, <laughs> this feels like a lifetime ago, but this was from the October 18th deck list dump. Uh, there's two different lists uh, that look like they're leaning on arc like phoenix uh one with 18 sorceries 18 lands uh, 14 creatures and then there's the other one like where you were talking about goblin electromancer uh are what, what is your creature suite and your your instance and sorceries kind of look like sure let me let me open up the deck right now and i'll just give you the full the full readout of exactly what i'm playing uh this will also be in my article tomorrow this is the deck i talked about being most excited about and if I had to to choose to play the tournament yesterday, this is the deck that I almost certainly would have played. As we come into today, like I said, I maybe I'm leaning a bit more towards Jeskai, but still very, very high on this uh, Phoenix archetype. So 22 lands, all blue-red lands, three shocks, four ops, one blink of an eye, four charter course, four radical idea, two lava coil, four goblin electromancers, two beacon bolt, which has been 
incredible. I can't believe I'm saying that. One Chemistry's Insight, four Arclight Phoenix, one Gravitic Punch, four Crackling Drake, four Discovery Dispersal. And I really think Discovery Dispersal was the card that kind of pushed this archetype forward a lot. Obviously, in combination with Goblin Electromancer, it goes absolutely bonkers. But it's just another consistency engine. You have so many cantrips in the deck now that you're just doing the same thing every single game. And that one plan is very consistent and very powerful against a lot of the format. So when I first saw this deck, it just looked like a budget deck to me because Arclight Phoenix was not very expensive. And aside from the dual lands, it's all commons and uncommons. Mm-hmm. And that's that's just kind of where I thought it was. But yeah, after after seeing the direction of the format, the fact that there's a lot of green decks and flyers are just incredible against them and people are cutting on removal spells. So Goblin Electromancer looks really good. You can play like a tempo-y Delver fish game against control decks, which seems pretty reasonable. And you don't have a ton of dead cards against them. And you also just have jumpstart stuff and phoenixes that are recursive and everything. So aside from actual mono red, what is this deck bad against? That's the main answer I have for you right now is mono red. I've had a lot of success with this deck. It seems very well positioned. I think the hardest thing is kind of figuring out what to do out of the sideboard. And honestly, my sideboard was probably just hurting myself in a lot of instances when I first started out. I think you need to be mostly very light in sideboarding. You want to keep the consistent engine and make a tweak or two along the road. Uh, I was initially trying like Sarkin, Fireblood, Niv-Mizzet stuff. I think Niv-Mizzet is probably fine. It's, It's a fine inclusion against control decks. And I had fear of Niv-Mizzet at first because like my deck has 22 lands. How realistically am I casting the six drop? The answer is always. You have have so much velocity. It's got, it's got to be on turn six every time. Um, Like you're going to cast it. You're going to cast it more consistently than the control decks with 27 land. Yep. You're spot on. And it it took me a second to realize that. But once I did, I was like, okay, Niv-Mizzet, you know, maybe has a place in the main deck. I've seen people talking about four Niv-Mizzets between uh, main and sideboard and just leaning on that plan really hard against control. But I, I think you're just fine against control. Once you have access to disdainful stroke and negate and can get your dead shocks and lava coils and, you know, you're probably keeping around beacon bolt because you're worried about Lyra or something like that. But where you're getting more effective cards, I, I think your control game is fine. It's just mono red. The options there, you see Fiery Cannonade, you see Wall of Mist is a card Yuck. I'm starting to see a lot. There's also Electrostatic Pillar. Again, all these these little walls that you're relying on. It's dicey, but I've won the matchup occasionally on the back of them. I don't know what the best approach is versus Mono Red, but you're right that that's your clear pronounced weakness and everything else feels mostly fine. And I, to hear people sleep on this deck, it's just like, well, you've never played with it. That's what it really comes right. down to. You just don't understand how good it is. Because I understand you look at this deck and you're like, oh, a budget deck, cute. And then you play with it and you're like, nope, this is a modern deck in standard right now. So sort of walk me through like what makes this so explosive because I mean like this is this is kind of the first time that I'm seeing it is is the goal of it just to jumpstart a bunch of Arclight Phoenix into your graveyard uh, and then just kind of go off when you have like a Goblin Electromancer or, or like how do the games typically play out that you've been so impressed with with this deck by? You, you have access to those really explosive arc light setups, and those are kind of mm-hmm. variance-based. You know, certainly your arc lights could fall to the bottom of your deck, and then your discoveries aren't going to place them in your graveyard, or your charter courses won't place them in the graveyard. But when they do, things can get out of control very, very quickly. When they don't, 
you're still going to play a crackling drake on turn four and it's probably coming down as like a five four and then if you get to untap it's probably going to be like an eight four very quickly you just have so many cantrips so much velocity the fact that beacon bolt in this deck is an effective two for one removal spell and you get to cash in your extra lands that you draw via jumpstart that's what really sold me on it is that you can manage any board presence. You would normally think like, oh, Doom Whisper is a death knell. You have to just trade off a Crackling Drake or something like that. No, you just kill it with Beacon Bolt every single time because your Beacon Bolts are always tremendous. So the, the most impressive games are the Arclight games, the games where you get to place Arclight in the graveyard very early and you have an elect, like you go turn one, opt, turn two, Electromancer, turn three, Chart, of course, discard Phoenix, Discovery, put another Phoenix in, radical idea, and then the game's basically over and no one can really beat an opening like that. That doesn't happen all the time, but it happens a lot. I mean, those that scenario I've given you, you've seen a lot of your deck at that point. You've seen basically uh, a quarter of it. So one arc like Phoenix is about the average and two is not outside the realm of possibility. So yeah, just executing that plan over and over very consistently is really the bread and butter of this deck. And then the huge crackling drakes are, are the plan B. And I love the gravitic punch. Like that's the card that people always go, uh, I don't know about that. It's so low cost to put it into your graveyard. And the fact that you can just out of nowhere, like in a slower game, play crackling drake, gravitic punch immediately, hit them for like 14. I've certainly done that before getting two attacks in one turn essentially with your crackling drake is pretty dramatic i've heard people ask me what about maximize velocity i think punch is better just because it ignores any blockers that might come into the picture but it's just a very low cost addition that pays huge dividends and has won me a bunch of games that no other card can win me yeah i think as a one of that seems completely fine to me right i certainly wouldn't play more than one gravitic punch that's the that's the four mana fling that doesn't kill your creatures that right correct with jumpstart with jumpstart yeah man i've my win rate against the card specifically fling has got to be like pretty close to zero percent. <laughs> and so now that you're advocating for a deck that's like when you're talking about gravitic, gravitic punch, who comes up with these names? That's that's a there's a lot of tongue twisters in this set, right? Or am I crazy? No, it's, it's been very challenging for me. And I'm someone who can struggle with pronunciation at times like Arc Light Phoenix is killing me right now. It's almost impossible for me to say. Yeah, so when when you're talking about advocating a deck that can have that that fling type effect, I'm just having like having nightmares about playing against a, a crackling Drake deck that can just kind of ten or twelve you out of nowhere. I just know I'm I just know I'm gonna lose to it this weekend. <laughs> there is near actual fling too. There there's thud in Core Set 19, which is one red essentially fling at sorcery speed. I've seen people do that. I think punch is better, but. I figured I should at least clue you in. That's a possibility you might get thudded this weekend. <laughs> What's What sounds worse, getting thudded to death or gravitic punched? Gravitic punch sounds pretty painful. They're both bad. And and man, have I had opponents tilt off over gravitic punch in the queues. Like those long scries that people go on where they're just trashing you for like 10 minutes in your chat window on Magic Online. I've gotten so many of those mm. based on the back and then, of punch. And then they, they call you a poor boy right. who enjoys ramen. Right, exactly. <laughs> we really got to do something about those people in Magic Online. That's that's just unbelievable that the program's been out for so long and it's still such an issue. Yeah, there's no recourse to being a jerk on Magic Online, unfortunately. 
Dude, like with League of Legends, which has, you know, incredibly toxic people. But when you send in a report, like you get the little message saying like instant feedback, you know, we've we've listened to your report and decide that this guy deserves a punishment. In Magic Online, you kind of just like send your report out into the ether yeah. and just like cross your fingers and hope something happens. Well, it also takes 30 minutes to send the report. Oh, yeah, dude. It's, it's so easy on League. They just have like a little a button, button next yeah. to the player's name. You just click it, and then that gives you like ten different things, like to choose. Like, did this guy go AFK? Did he? Did he like? Was he was he griefing you? Was did he like intentionally feed? And you know, you just like click the three things that are applicable. If you want to, you can type out a report, but then you just like click a button that says report, and it's just done instantly. Yeah, that's right. It kind of blows my mind that Arena does not have a through client report thing. Well, is that kind of like Hearthstone on, on Arena? So, like, forgive me, I haven't played any arena is it kind of like they can only emote at you or uh yeah but i was reporting some people uh for their screen names ah uh, yeah yeah I could, there's I could that there's that, that and you can abuse the clock pretty spectacularly in arena to like really monopolize your opponent's time which i mean i i guess is kind of within the rules like the program allows you to do it but it still should be reportable yeah for sure anyway this phoenix deck sounds good this is this is one of the few decks i haven't played with basically so it's kind of unfortunate that it it is this good i guess but uh that is definitely good to know about mono red has to be trending down though right it just doesn't seem like it's very good against anything for sure i I, there's not many positive matchups left and if it does exist it exists in a bigger form i think which probably is beneficial for you I'm not saying you like go to favored against a larger version of Mono Red, but you have more of a chance than you do against like Flame of Keld, uh, tons of one drops type type builds. Yeah, moving away from one drops and moving more towards things like Experimental Frenzy seems like it's completely fine for you. Yep. I would guess that against normal Mono Red, your best sideboard plan probably involves just as many Shivan Fires as you could possibly get your hands on. Maybe. Maybe you just want one-for-one one removal all over the place. It's tough because you don't have a source of, of card advantage, right? Like, you trade all these one-for-ones, and there's very little actual card advantage unless, like, you attack and get a chart, of course, off, or your one-of Chemistry's Insight comes into play. But at some point, you're going to have card quantity issues under that plan. So maybe you have to look to some way of generating additional card quantity and, you know... Karn exists. You can do stuff like that. There's there's probably other options too. Maybe it's just something like Rawl. Uh yeah, I was thinking like Drake, Rawl, Niv. Yeah. Any any sort of combination of those things is probably okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Dude, what about expansion explosion? I've too seen ma- too man intensive. I, I've seen people too play it. Intensive? I've seen people play it in these lists. I, I think I agree with Jerry. I, I tend to fall in that place. But like you said, you do hit a lot of your land drops. The card is fairly versatile. It's, it's really hard to complicate your main plan. And the fact that you're not getting a discount from Electromancer on the front side is really tough in games where like you do want to set up Phoenix lines and get on board really quickly. So I don't know. I, I haven't been impressed with the card, but I don't think you're crazy for suggesting it. It, it seems reasonable. Thanks, my new best friend, Brian Gottlieb. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. <laughs> uh, search could be a way to do it, too. I've seen people do that as well. Uh, I think it was uh, Surfcat over in the game podcast Discord. His version of this okay. deck has both Search and Expansion Explosion. And I know VTCLA also likes the expansion package as well. So opinions are kind Man, of torn. Those guys sound really smart. They, they are smart. They certainly are. And 
you know, this has been one of the the decks that our community has really seized on. I know Kane, I hope I'm pronouncing your last name right, Kane, Kane Reinhardt, GP Top 8 competitor. He won a PPTQ this weekend playing essentially the deck I described. He's really high on the archetype. There's just a bunch of people who have taken on this deck and immediately recognized this as something very powerful. What are, what are the kind of the ways that you can get punished for like relying on Arclight Phoenix? Like how much how much graveyard like hate are people actually playing? There's the Discover Creature that was in Ixlon. I, I forget the name of it. The one one for one black. Yeah, uh, I'm blanking on Dead something. Eye Tracker. Tracker. Dead Eye Tracker. But it's it's so slow and so bad. Like I wouldn't even worry about people hating your graveyard very much. I mean, I, I guess if you know you have some phoenixes and you play a Crackling Drake and they sentinel totem you or whatever it's kind of annoying but it's it's not like it's the end of the world or anything like drake is going to build back up very quickly yeah so when i when this deck came on my radar i was kind of having a moment where i'm like okay this deck is probably going to be an issue what if there was a deck that was just able to maximize the one three white creature to cotley honor guard as well as the 2-1 2-1 Flying Spirit that can exile Graveyard. So what if you just had like a white aggro deck that was able to play those cards profitably and, you know, use Mentor to make them bigger or whatever, some kind of white aggro plan that was disruptive in those fashions. And the Graveyard hate was just so inconsequential always. It never mattered whatsoever. Now, Honor Guard is a real card. And it is. I, I think people have learned that and it, it is very effective against all of these green black decks. Um, and maybe we'll see. What, which Honor What's the name of the honor guard again? Tukotli honor guard. It says uh, when abilities that would trigger when a creature comes into play do not trigger. Okay, and it's one one in a white for a one three. Is that right? Correct. Man, still got it. Correct. And, and that card's extremely good against the black green decks. My point is the graveyard hate was not impressive anywhere. It just didn't matter, and it's it's too big of a cost to pay. And it's not like these are all in graveyard decks. Like you're stunting development, but you rebuild so quickly. You have again so much velocity that you'll be fine if your graveyard gets hated on. You'll you'll be able to rebuild. All right. Well, maybe we will circle back around to this blue red deck, but I do want to talk about the various Selesnya tokens decks where. Uh, we talked about Song of Freilis last weekend. Takali Honor Guard is a thing that's popping up like all over the place. Tristani's getting more love. Uh, Immortal Sun Path of Discovery is showing up now because of Tulio Jotti. What would you do with Selesnya this week? It, it feels like a lot of these decks are kind of seeing like a resurgence in their good. I think that they're going to be weak to flyers, so that makes this blue-red deck even more appealing. But I do think that these decks are basically hard targeting Golgari and, and being successful because of it. Yeah, I got to play a bit with Song of Freilies. I was very underwhelmed. I, I just think it's like a super snowball-y card. When it lines up well, it's great. And you'll maybe remember those times. And when it doesn't, it's just so devastating. Maybe part of my problem was like I was trying some other things and I had Chamber Sentry in my deck, which I still believe Chamber Sentry is actually a very good card. I may die on this hill. We'll see. But I think maybe Chamber Sentry and a less song-focused deck as just like a little value piece would probably be fine as an additional one drop to turn on certain things. But anyway, the the broader strategic plan of going very wide is not impressing me currently. And we talked a little bit about how if Golgari didn't have appropriate controls in place for these type of decks, they were going to struggle. My experience this week is they had those controls in place. I got uh, Golden Demised a bunch. I saw Ritual of Soots in various places. So I I just lost a lot 
with the various Lesnia decks. And I don't want to be results oriented. We looked at the list from the PTQs and they were just very, very light on sweepers. They were. They and were. I, so that that just changed, I guess. My my sample size isn't huge. So maybe I I ran into our listeners who were, you know, completely prepared and that was just random chance. Um and, and they haven't been widely adopted. But that was my experience throughout the week. Well, even so, I mean, the cards like Path of Discovery and Immortal Sun are the big ones. And there are even some Golgari lists that are playing the Immortal Sun now with Midnight Reaper and Land of War Elves and stuff. I think this is just like a very common thing that you're going to run into. The, the card also doubled in price on Magic Online, so people are clearly picking it up. Oh, for sure. And the card is good. It, it fixes a lot of problems that these decks previously had. Yeah, I, th- I think I, I was coming into the, the podcast, I was leaning towards some version of green-white. I do think Honor Guard is very good at sh- shutting down Golgari almost completely. But there are some things like Tristani that I also wanted to play, and those obviously don't work that well together. But right. uh, two, two Leo's Path of Discovery deck looks like you just do insano busted things. You just go over the top of everyone if given enough time, and that's pretty sick. But... I do think that these decks also are just weak to the Arclight Phoenix deck. I think you're right. That has been my experience as well. God, I got to be honest. Out of like the four or five decks that we've talked about, I'm kind of warming up to the idea of registering some Arclight Phoenixes this weekend. You're, you're not the only one. And I've, I've struggled with this throughout the week. I told Jerry earlier, I gave this deck to my brother to play. And my brother doesn't play a ton of magic. Um, you know, he's, he's basically in and out of the magic scene. And God, I didn't even know you had a brother. I know. I, Where I, you been hiding this brother? I keep him under wraps. <laughs> he's he's been playing a lot with this deck this week and winning a lot. And he's not like at his best. He just doesn't have the reps under his belt to be a really polished Magic player right now. And the deck is bailing him out all over the place. And usually when he's winning a lot, it's a deck that I should be paying attention to. That's that's been my experience in the past. Dude, you're just full of backhanded compliments this week. What the heck is going on? (laughs) Weird. It's almost like Jerry and I are the same person, and I'm a figment of his imagination. I know. Listen, that's my brother. He has dealt with my backhanded compliments and really just backhandedness throughout his entire life. So he's definitely suited to to bear it. And also, he doesn't listen to this podcast. So I don't care. I could say terrible things about him, and they would never even get to his ears. Hmm. So kind of like how the theory is that I'm I'm a figment of Jerry's imagination. Are we are we certain that you have a brother and it's not just like your alter ego? You're you're Tyler Durden? Uh it's possible. I mean anything's possible. I I, I take no uh firm stock in reality ever. That's always been my approach. That is a frightening way to live. <laughs> it is. It really is. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, like, if you're, you know, quote unquote brother, I, I was doing like these things with my fingers, like doing the air quotes, and I was like, wait a not second, useful. you guys can't see no, that. What am useful. I doing? But like, so if you're if your brother's like crushing with it, if there's people that are in in the game Discord, dude, are, do they just like have like the best community for like deck building and ideas and stuff? Yeah, yeah, wow, that's incredible. Yeah, I, I say that all the time. Maybe I should unmute the the Discord because it keeps on <laughs> popping up and like sending me all these notifications. Maybe I have to to poke my head in there to see what's going on. But it sounds like they're doing a ton of good work on it. I'm trying to think of reasons not to play it. Like it's it kind of you know checks all your boxes when you were talking about having something that could potentially spike if you have you know the right set of matchups for it. Uh, if playing something that people are generally unaware of or not prepared to play against uh, is, a, is another point of favor for it. Like it, it kind of sounds like you're looking for a reason not to play it. And I still like, I can't, can't quite put my finger on a specific reason not to play the stack. It's mono red and that's it. Yeah. But how, 
like realistically how many like the, it seems to me like the metagame is wide open there's going to be I, w- I would be surprised if you know you played against a specific deck more than twice maybe three times throughout the course of the tournament mm-hmm. and given like how mono red's kind of falling out of favor uh, it seems like recently and it just loses to a bunch of decks that you know it sounds like you're just saying that i don't want to play this deck just because of the off chance that i play against a bad matchup that's not unwinnable uh it's just a bad matchup uh a handful of times throughout the course of the tournament maybe this is a nice time for some metagame estimations what do you jerry do you want to take a stab at like your expected metagame for this gp we're heading into so normally like standard last format i would try to get the total archetypes close to a hundred percent because i think you could account for almost everything right this tournament feels like there's gonna be 20 to 25 percent of just random stuff yeah i could buy that so maybe 25 percent golgari one out of four players in the room you expect to be on golgari yeah maybe that's high feels high to me even with all the success the deck has seen i would put it closer to 15 but you know that's not that many uh percentage points away we could we could certainly fall somewhere in the middle I would say 10% mono red, 15% control, mostly Jeskai, maybe some Esper. Selesnia's maybe like 10%. Okay, so let's 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 assume, right, that mono red, a bad matchup for this arc like Phoenix deck is 10%, right? So you're saying that Oh no, every- I, I would play blue red for sure. I th- I think just ignoring mono red for the most part is is a good mm-hmm. plan. But Yeah, I when- agree. Yeah, when trying to come up with reasons to not play it, it's like it, Mono Red is literally the only reason, right? It does seem like the only thing that is close to a bad matchup. I think I think that Brian might just have like PTSD from just getting beat up by Mono Red on, on Magic Online so often that he's just off the deck all, like and just ignoring all these different data points that suggest the otherwise. No, no, I, I, I'm not even saying I'm off the deck. I think this is... There, I When I started the show, I gave you two contenders for my GP dollars. This was one, and Jeskai was the other. I, I feel I'm in the same place as when we started. I'm still leaning towards one of those two decks. Mm. So coming into this podcast, having no such preconceptions and hearing you guys extol the praises of it, like I, it kind of sounds like I'm, I want to register art like Phoenix, and I need to, to start getting the cards together for this. And by that, I mean having my patron jerry thompson purchase all these cards for me and send it over with you yeah i got you i got you nice nice so brian what what did kind of change for you why were you so high on the stack and then you're like oh maybe i'm off it mono red no it, it wasn't even a particular experience i think like i was having a hard time really figuring out my last sideboard slots. I mean, part of the struggle was like, what am I going to do against Mono Red for sure? I didn't feel like I had found a reasonable plan there. I don't know beyond that. Like something else caught my eye. This is one of the problems with having like really intense ADD and loving magic more than anything on the planet is that something else will just be like, ooh, shiny new thing. And I'll run off in search of it. And I can't even give you a reason why I left the previous thing. I just got excited about something new in the moment. Can you guys make a pact that you'll play the the same 75? I'll make that pact, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. What's the worst that could happen? I play a great deck with no bad mashups except for Mono Red, sure. (laughs) Well, it sounds like Cho has (laughs) already decided exactly what 75 we're playing, so. Cho, you have two buys? Uh, I believe so. (laughs) What am I, what what, what am I, bronze now? Dude, I don't know. You're Uh, asking the wrong person. No, 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 I'm asking myself. What is, is bronze is two buys, right? 
I, I have no, I have no idea. idea. <laughs> Not even a guess. Oh my god. I've never been bronze in my life, so you guys, you guys are two of the smartest people that I've ever met in my life, and we still can't wrap our hand around. Oh, also sick brags, but yeah, man. Like, I, I guess I'll find out on Saturday. Although, no, I should really figure out beforehand because I'm, I'm, I'm driving up at some point this week to uh, spend a couple days over at Frank Scarin's house. We've been playing a lot of uh, non-magic video games together, specifically League, and I'm pretty excited to to hang out with him. He's always a uh, He's always a really cool person to hang out with. Yeah, so I should probably figure out how many buys I have if I we the plan is to drive down on Saturday morning because I think he's like an hour away from the site, uh, and then we'll be crashing with Mister Brian Gottlieb on Saturday night. Yes, sir. Smart. Yeah, I'm so smart. Gosh, it's this this whole thing of me like putting off planning to the last minute and having responsible people like Frank and Brian come up with all the plans where I just have to like show up basically. It's just really paying dividends in my life right now. That must be nice. I can't imagine what that's like. Dude, it's so good. Well, I think I think we're in agreement. I mean, the last thing I was going to talk about was Grix's control, but that seems completely mopey compared to all these other sweet decks. I mean, what what's drawing you towards Grixis? Like, like, where's your, where's your love for Grixis coming from? Because I, I want that deck to be good, and I haven't seen a deck yet that I'm excited about in that. Oh, I'm not, I'm not excited about any specific build or anything. It was just a deck that seemed like it could be good against Golgari, but gotcha. things like Blue Red and these new Selesnya decks seem like they target Golgari in a better fashion. Okay, that makes sense. So, uh, we we want to wrap this up with a question, Brian. What you got for me? Sure. Let's let's do a question. Uh, I like this one from Nick Prince because Jerry, only you can answer this one. And you know, our patrons know I often go through and answer the questions uh, that don't get chosen for the show over in our Discord. But this one, I just can't answer. And I actually want to know your feedback on this. Nick Prince asks, "How has the PT being so much later affected how you approach the formats?" That's not something I've really thought about, but I mean, it's it's got to make a big difference to have the Pro Tour appear much later in the season. It just makes it more relaxed for me personally, where I don't feel a time crunch to get as many drafts under my belt as I possibly can. And that's potentially to my detriment because, you know, now I've done like 10 or 15 GRN drafts, and I'm sure there are other people who have done like 150, you know, and there might come a time where I'm like, oh man, I have, I really have to do 10 more drafts before this tournament or whatever. But instead I'm just like, oh, I got time. I got plenty of time. How about how it affects constructed preparation? I mean, do you think it's either stifling innovation, encouraging innovation, encouraging tuning as opposed to innovation? What do you think its effect has been on the constructed metagame? Well, I, th- I think most people don't care. Like, the, the Magic Online hive mind is going to do the work that it would do regardless. And the, the past few weeks have been a good example of that, right? Where the format keeps moving, people keep innovating. It doesn't seem like anyone, or at least, you know, the, the normal suspects are not really hiding things for the Pro Tour or whatever. It just seems like everything kind of gets figured out. And that's just generally a good thing. I really don't like the PT being far out because I think a lot of people wait to get into standard until they see the results from the Pro Tour. Mm. So I I think that's just generally bad. I mean, there are long enough wait times on Magic Online already, and 
certainly within like the first week where there's only like 100 or 200 people in the standard leagues. It's it's just kind of awful. Whereas I think if you had some results already, people would be pretty hyped to get on and start playing Magic. Yeah, I always liked the crunch of like trying to understand as much as possible about the format prior to the Pro Tour. Uh, it was certainly stressful at times, but it felt like the purest form of magic. I, I don't I don't know if that's actually the word I'm looking for, but there was something very unique about the experience of preparing for a Pro Tour before everything had been kind of sussed out to the degree it often gets sussed out to now. Um, you know, maybe if the Pro Tour was two weeks ago, you show up with this Phoenix deck and run over the field and no one has heard of it. But like, whatever, that's a lot of revisionist history and things can certainly not go that way. And there could still be a deck out there that someone just comes up with and, you know, pilots to a really powerful performance. That possibility isn't foreclosed by the Pro Tour pushing out, but it does feel a little bit less likely to me. That's kind of my read on the situation. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Joe, what about you? I mean, you've you've gone through this experience, right? Like how different are the PTs where it's two weeks after a set release versus a month and a half after a set release? I will say that when, when you're talking about the amount of time that you have to prepare for it, people always have like, look kind of, I feel like they look for reasons to put off doing the work for it. Uh, Cause I, I remember when we were testing with larger teams, it would be like, uh, we, we could just, we, we should probably just draft now because you know, there's, there's an SCG open, like the standard open mm. uh, that's kind of going to like set the tone of the metagame. And also it'll just give more time for the hive mind on magic online to come up with a metagame that we know to attack with. And, you know, just spending that time to draft as opposed to work on constructed. But I, I do feel like it's just not as exciting. And I think that with a game like Magic, I'd, I'd be looking to to create moments of excitement, like with a brand new deck, like with an arc like Phoenix deck, you know, if the Pro Tour was a little bit sooner uh, after the release than having a month and a half off of people going to FNMs or playing on the uh, Star City Open Series circuit, I would love it if the the Pro Tours were a lot sooner to give people a lot less of uh, a lead time and allowing the, the metagame to sort of form uh, versus just like just dumping the whole thing on them. Like I would have loved it if worlds was just new standard and you yeah, guys had, sure. had like, you know, the like two weeks or whatever to like come up with your best deck after Yo, this, this huge rotation. Give us 48 hours to build our deck. Yeah. Yeah. What's the yeah, problem I mean, with that? Why do, why do people fear that so much? Like I get that you don't get the refined metagame, but that's cool. It's exciting. You don't know what's going to happen. I, I think you're spot on Joe. I think the pro tour should be the first use of these cards in standard. I think that's exactly where it should lie. And I understand like the preparation difficulties with that, but like you can proxy cards. You don't, as soon as these cards are revealed, people start building decks. It's not like anyone waits around anyway. May as well capitalize on the excitement of the new set to the fullest degree possible. I, I agree because I mean when we're talking about magic as an esport in compar- in like in comparison to to games like League of Legends, the games themselves they aren't as exciting as some of the other esports right. games like League. You know they just don't have these built in moments of excitement where you can get hyped up about. So in my opinion, I feel like Magic should be literally doing everything possible to generate excitement about their games. And I can't think of something that they could do that would be more exciting uh, than having the pinnacle of pro play at pro tours at worlds, um, you know, at these high, at the highest level of competition being the first exposure to the public of the new set. Like I I'm, I'm stoked about standard for the first time in a while. I don't want to venture a guess cause it's not my, 
my background or my specialty into, you know, what the the viewings of the Pro Tour would be if the tournament was, you know, a week after the set's release. But I, I can imagine that I would be I would be glued to my computer trying to watch all the new things that that the pros and the, and the different teams and, you know, the people that are playing on the Pro Tour uh, have, have come up with to bring out. That just sounds like it would be the easiest thing in the world for people to do to generate excitement uh, about the game. So... One of the things that y'all might not be thinking about is how big of a lull happens in between set releases when you do have the Pro Tour in the first couple weeks. Just like there is that month of excitement and then it just starts tapering off. So by moving the Pro Tour more towards the middle, I could see how it might create like more consistent interest in the format throughout the the entirety of that three month period. But I don't think there's any reason why you can't do something in the middle of those three months or like towards the end of it. I, I also would well, point I f- out, I f- sorry, Joe, I, I want to get this out before I forget about it. Cause it's a little nebulous. So <laughs> one of the things that wizards often leans on and emphasizes is the value of polarity. I hear Mark Rosewater talk about this a lot. And what he's talking about is that like when he's designing cards, he's happier if he gets, a bunch of ones and a bunch of tens than if he gets a bunch of sevens when someone's rating a card he's designed. And the situation you're describing is like the bunch of sevens. Like you're moving things more to the middle and you're stretching things out over a longer period, but you're not getting that huge spike in excitement. I think the spike of excitement is worth so much more. And like, there's basically two things, because like Cho said, Magic doesn't have the same visual appeal of a lot of these other games. There's kind of two things you can really sell hard coming from a pro tour. A personal story, you know, someone triumphing over adversity or, you know, I I think of like Calcano making his first top eight is one that I thought was a really great person personal story to come out of a pro tour. And though that's a really firm selling point. And the second one I think of is breakout decks. And, you know, there's a lot of problems after pro tour Eldrazi, but in the moment, that story was super, super exciting. The gameplay may not have been the best, but the story usurped a lot of that. And it made that a very, very exciting pro tour. And so by putting it in the front end of the format, every deck's a breakout deck. Everything's exciting. And I I think the event itself just goes through the roof. And like you get to use that buzz to carry you through what's a a general lull period. And there's other ways to address lull periods too. It's not the pro tour's responsibility to deal with all of that. You can have other things going on at the same time. So yeah, I'm all in favor of the pro tour showing up much earlier in the schedule. Um, when you're talking about lulls um, created throughout the life of, a, life of a standard format, so let's let's say that the the Pro Tour happened a lot sooner than it was. You know, there's going to be a lot of people, a lot of incredibly smart people that are doing their best to come up with the best, like the best possible deck that they can. The thing about it is, is they're not going to. It's going to be very infrequently that people can just absolutely break a format. Right. I would I would view this as more as just like a first data point in setting a meta game for it, and like. Things change all the time. When we're talking about this standard format now, where things just happen to be changing at such a such a fast rate, and again, the the pressure is on Watsi uh, to to continue to come up with magic sets that have that type of that that, that kind of breed that type of life into the standard format. And I think that's fine. That 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 should be pressure that's put on them, but. If you look at it, week one metagame or the Pro Tour metagame, if it's that early, it's not going to be just this 
absolutely fixed format where people can't innovate, can't find ways to attack a metagame, come up with new strategies, come up with, you know, things that people at the pro tour might not have even seen, you know? And I think that that's incredibly exciting. And then that's, that should be that type of innovation that you see throughout the life of a format should be reflected in like Grand Prix, in opens throughout the course of it. So I, I, I don't necessarily agree that having, you know, trying to artificially give more life into a format by pushing the most exciting part of magic in the, in a new set. So, so for instance, so let's say like we have the, the pro tour pushed into the middle. So Jerry, what, like, why would you think that that would be a, like an acceptable excuse to sort of like shelve the excitement of a new set? All I'm saying is that when you have the pro tour within the first couple weeks, after about a month, a month and a half after a set release, uh, excitement does start tapering off like that is that that's actually just fact. And I agree with Brian where, you know, getting getting the 10, the, the, the spike of 10 when the Pro Tour is in the first couple weeks is huge. And it's probably worth more than having it be kind of just like middling throughout the in, entirety of the set being released. I, and I also think that there are ways to generate interest at the end. Like right. it just means that there should probably be like another big tournament towards the end of a format yep. or like in, in month two and then like let month three be its own thing where it starts tapering off. Right. Do you think that that's part of the reason why Watsi is going to like the, the two pro tours in the season thing? I don't, God, that's another announcement that I, I still can't really wrap my head around. I, I honestly, like, I can't even make like a reasonable guess as to why that's happening. I mean, that would be kind of cool, though, because I know that they're, did they announce, right, that the Pro Tours are not going to be coinciding with the set release? Is that is that accurate? Uh, I also don't know. They have released a lot of announcements and words and things have changed, and I can't say for certain whether or not I have everything straight. Yeah, that's that's kind of disappointing. But, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I just know that like a pro tour is coming up. I know what format it is. And then once that is over and done with, I will focus on the next one. And I, I just assume that I will be told at various points what formats things are. You know, maybe that's a bad way to go about it. OK, but so for you personally, would you prefer that? Do you think that this is a better gap in time between a set's release and the pro tour? Like, what would you personally like to do as a pro player? Well, as a pro player, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of people would just be like, well, put all the money on the top 32 and, <laughs> you know, m come up with some amount of time that is optimal for 20 person teams and really bad for uh, solo PTQ right. winners. Right. right. So as a pro player, I don't know. I think it would be sweet if it's just like, OK, the full spoilers out on Monday and the PTs on Friday. Love it. I wish they would just try that one time. What's the worst that could happen? They throw away one PT. They 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 did back in Mirage or whatever. Yeah, that's like what twenty years ago or something. Oh yeah, I think that was sealed though. Times right? Like, that was like a seal a sealed pre release for a pro tour. It was yeah, it was limited. People didn't know any of the cards, and it was like it was also where you couldn't tell the rarity. So it was like you keep <laughs> you know your decks have four Caravex torches or whatever, and you're like, what the hell? This has to be rare, right? Yeah, that's crazy. Any any final thoughts, Cho? What do you think? Uh, I'm pretty excited to uh, to play in the first Grand Prix that I've played in a while. Uh, the format looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. Sounds like we've got some pretty exciting deck choices to make a decision on. And you're doing the thing right where you're you're going to post the deck that I'm going to be playing on the Patreon page. 
Well, it depends. I will post my deck or the deck that I would play, and then Brian will post the deck that he is going to play, and hopefully, you know, one of those two decks is the deck that you would register. Oh, I, I think we should just yeah. So I think if Brian and I are having a uh, a, a death pact, right, where we yes. have to play the same seventy five. Yeah, we're going down together. I mean, this is just the the natural extension when you used to do this to me all the time on the Star City Tour when we would work together, where you would just put up your article on Friday before an open of the exact <laughs> 75 and then and then help people sideboard against your deck after you play them. And I play against them later on in the tournament and they have the full sideboarding plan directly from you about how to sideboard against us. That's always a delight. So I'm looking forward to playing this weekend with the full 75 known. Just embrace it, Joe. You come on the game podcast, you play magic on hard mode. That's how we do things around here. If if you didn't come on the podcast and you didn't play blue-red, you'd probably be playing some bad Golgari deck. So there you go. You're still going to do better. Yeah. All right, Mr. Cho, you're the guest. Sign us out. That's game!